welcome to Spine and Body Podcast. This podcast's stated goals are to change how the world treats musculoskeletal pain, to create experts in the treatment of neck, back, and shoulder pain, and to advance the world's understanding of this pain, to inspire researchers, thinkers, and innovators, to empower patients and embolden caretakers. Follow us on this journey and let's learn and grow together. This podcast is brought to you by the Body Guitar Clinic because your body is a finely tuned instrument. Like all finely tuned instruments, it must be properly cared for in order to play the beautiful music it was intended to play. Care for your body and use it correctly, and it will play music that is unique to you, your life song. This is Sean Wheeler, MD, and let's get your body in tune. Welcome to another uh, episode of Spine and Body Podcast. I'm I'm really excited to uh, uh, to de- bring this uh, this episode to you today. It it was a redo from last year. We Dr. Uh, Goodman and I, Dr. Mark Goodman, is up in uh, Oregon, and we did a uh, a great, possibly the greatest podcast ever on sleep. And then it had to be trashed because the audio was so bad. Not no pressure, Dr. Goodman. I, I think it was the greatest podcast maybe of all time on on anything. Uh, but you yeah, know, no agreed. one will ever hear it. So too no bad. one will we'll, ever hear it. Right. We'll, we'll try and, uh, and recreate some of that magic. That's today, right. Maybe. There's no way. I mean, there's no way. But what you're about to hear is the second greatest podcast episode in the history of mankind. So, wow. that's, uh, uh, that is yeah, pressure. All yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. So sleep. You know, the last time we talked, we spent a lot of time talking about sleep, and I went back and I read some of the books that that you uh, had been talking about, and I was, I was astounded by what what is being discovered and what is being what is being found out about sleep uh, for us and actually for every living being on the planet, uh, which is. Truly amazing. So, how did tell us a little bit about, about what you do, who you are, and how did you get into into sleep? Sure. So, I'm a, a primary care sports medicine doctor out in Oregon. Uh, I live in Bend and work at Desert Orthopedics. But uh, most recently, I've been kind of more interested in the preventative and performance side of sports medicine and what we do because I think more and more, like most of us, we're kind of realizing that a lot of the conditions that we're seeing these chronic conditions that overflow into primary care and sports medicine are preventable, but we're maybe not acting on these soon enough. So my, my interest has become kind of shifted more towards lifestyle modification, which includes diet, exercise, and then sleep is a huge component of that. And so I started doing some work with a company called Wild Health, where we do genomics-based personalized medicine. And then uh, most recently, just uh, helping with the launch of CrossFit Precision Care, which I'm really excited about. So we're going to be kind of taking some of that to the CrossFit population and trying to apply some of these things that we've learned to work on getting people healthier and hopefully avoiding some of these chronic conditions that we know are probably preventable. And, you know, where sleep comes into that is that we know that sleep is important and is becoming more and more valued. But for a long time, we've kind of downplayed the role that sleep plays. And we have thought, you know, that's just the time when you're, you know, resting, it's wasted time, potentially at night where you could be up and doing something. But we also know that with long-term data, that if we look uh, sleep deprivation carries with it all sorts of downstream consequences. So we know it increases your risk of death. Uh, uh, it's been quoted about four times increased risk of death over 10 years. If you're sleeping less than six hours per night, we know that it leads to decreased body composition, increased 
cardiovascular disease, depression, cancer, Alzheimer's. I mean, the list just kind of goes on and on. And when I'm seeing some of these patients and working on health optimization, one of the key things that sometimes ties together all these metabolic abnormalities, hormonal abnormalities that we're seeing in laboratory studies is this lack of sleep. So it became something I was just more and more interested in and then trying to figure out how to kind of synthesize some of this information in a way that we can bring to our patients. Yeah, really good. You know, I I liked how, um, you know, Matthew Walker said that if if sleep provided no value, then evolution would have would have removed it because it's eight hours of sleep, eight hour, eight hours where we are uh, defenseless. Exactly. I mean, if you haven't read Matthew Walker's book on why we sleep, that's a, a great intro to this topic. And I'd, I'd highly recommend it if you have a chance to check it out. But yeah, I agree. You know, if, if evolutionarily we didn't need that eight to nine hours of sleep per night, you'd think that we would have gradually removed that over time. Uh, but it turns out, I think it is important. And we're seeing more and more as we have kind of gotten busier and tried to cut that out. We're now experiencing the downstream effects of that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So the Matthew Walker book, I did the audio book and it was 16 hours and, and my, uh, 14 year old son would be like, when he'd get in the car, he's like, are you still listening to that book? Cause I want to hear it. So <laughs> that's of course, great. Yeah. Part, of course, part of it was, is that, you know, he kept saying that adolescents need more sleep and parents don't wake them up on the weekends and things mm-hmm. like that. So he was, he was really digging that. He was pumped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to I, us. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, you know, there is truth to that and having children myself, you know, I think, uh, I've definitely kind of shifted more to letting them sleep and be maybe a little bit more on their own sleep schedule as they get older, as opposed to trying to impose my sleep schedule or the, you know, what is going on on uh, their sleep schedule and letting them have that kind of opportunity to maybe stay up a little bit later or sleep a little bit later when they need that. And, you know, part of that comes down to this personal chronotype. So knowing whether you're a morning person or a night person, and based on that, you can really make some decisions on how you structure not only your work, but your exercise and then your sleep to follow, which is, I think, something that we're increasingly recognizing is important. So let's get back to that. Let's 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 first talk about sleep in general, and then and then we'll get back to that that uh, personal sleep cycle. So tell us a little bit about the about the sleep stages. Sure. So you know, I'm going to kind of break this down, and this isn't the kind of depth that you know Matthew Walker would go into. But when I think about sleep, I really approach it. In, two kind of categories. So we have the REM and the non-REM sleep. And most people have heard of the REM sleep, but the non-REM sleep probably doesn't get as much press as it should. And so in that non-REM sleep, you really have three different stages there. And stage one is where you're going from being awake to going to sleep, where you're kind of in that really kind of light sleep, your heart rate and breathing start to slow down a little bit, and you're getting ready to relax. Stage two is slightly deeper where you're relaxing even further and your body temperature is starting to drop. And then stage three is what's called slow wave sleep. And that's that really deep sleep that you need to feel refreshed in the morning and occurs more so in the first half of the night when you first fall asleep. So a typical person will spend their time shifting between, you know, stage one, stage two, stage three. You don't necessarily go back and forth in a a cycle where you're going one, two, three, one, two, three. You can go back from two to three to two and back and forth. And then towards the end of your sleep cycle, you get into what's called REM sleep. And that typically occurs you know, 90 minutes or so after falling asleep where you'll get into this rapid 
alternating uh, movement sleep where your eyes are moving behind your eyelids and your brain is actually during that time kind of becoming more awake. And that's where you experience those vivid dreams. And we think this is probably more important for synthesizing memory and also kind of putting together all the pieces of your day from a cognitive perspective. So kind of putting all those different things together and for memory and learning. So the slow wave sleep, probably most important to feel physically rested and for athletic performance, whereas the REM sleep may be more important for cognitive performance and memory consolidation. Now, that being said, there's some overlap here between all those, and they're certainly both important. Um, but you can look at some data and see if someone's having disordered non-REM or slow wave sleep versus REM sleep and maybe make some interventions based on that to help out. Right. And, you know, one of the stories that I really liked that they talked about was the, um, you know, the people who have PTSD, right? Normally your REM sleep would organize those thoughts into something that you can digest and, and accept psychologically, except their dreams kept waking them up over and mm -hmm. over. And then that dream, it became kind of this PTSD because they were afraid to sleep. They were afraid to dream about it. Every, everything started triggering it. And they never could quite organize their thoughts in their dreams subconsciously, and they, and they end up with a PTSD. Now, that's just a theory, but, but it does remind people that, that, that dreams are where we organize you know, our emotions and our, and our memories and our thoughts. So yeah, that's, a, that's really important. And what we can see over time, too, is with chronic sleep deprivation, your body is going to prioritize that stage three or slow wave sleep because it really, you know, you need that to physically be up and moving. And that can come at the expense of REM sleep. And that will suffer with chronic sleep deprivation or changing sleep cycles, um, which is likely a component of why disordered sleep leads to all these downstream cognitive problems. So what kind of things are we seeing with people who are like, so, so break this down into people who are not sleeping well at all. What type of what type of physical and and other type of problems are we having? And then compare that to someone who's getting six hours of sleep versus someone who's getting eight. Sure. So you know, I probably back up even a little bit before that. We probably should mention just how how we monitor this because I think this has been something that's pretty revolutionary in the last few years that we're now able to have these wearable devices that give us an idea of what these numbers look like. Because before, this was something that you could really only do in a lab with you know, a polysomnogram and a sleep lab to be able to tell what these sleep cycles look like. And now there's all sorts of, um, of wearables that can give us some data here. The Whoop and the Aura are probably the most common, but Fitbit and Garmin also have um, similar devices as well. But I think there's also a caveat that comes with that is that these are probably not as accurate as doing a sleep study. So we need to, you know, take these numbers and look at them, but also be a little bit skeptical when you see something that doesn't make sense. I think they're useful for trends over time, but there's also a, probably a pretty high margin of error that we're seeing with some of these wearable devices. So um, with that being said, you know, your question about the disordered REM versus disordered slow wave sleep. So when someone has disordered slow wave sleep, they usually are going to uh, wake up feeling kind of groggy or one of those people that's difficult to wake up or pushing the alarm button over and over and over. Also, if you have disordered slow wave sleep, it can lead to trouble with insulin resistance as well as some difficulty with producing growth hormone and testosterone. So if you have hormonal imbalances or feeling tired, looking at the sleep is really a really good starting point there. And like I mentioned, one of the things that can really, you know, crush this slow way of sleep is if you have chronic sleep deprivation, so you're just not sleeping enough to really capitalize on the 
that, um, I'm sorry, that was for REM sleep. So you're going to prioritize a slow way, but you're not going to get the REM that you need. Um, and alcohol is one of the things that's really going to mess up slow wave sleep. So if you've experimented with a, any kind of wearable device and have noticed that your sleep suffers after a couple of drinks, that's probably where you're losing a lot of that sleep is during that slow wave cycle. That REM sleep, on the other hand, is the mentally restorative part. So that's where you're going to integrate your experiences and learning and make those neural connections. And the goal here should really be between 25% of your total sleep time should be in REM sleep. So about 90 minutes or so with most people. And in most people, this is going to decline with aging. But as I mentioned previously, kind of incorrectly, the, the body will prioritize a slow wave sleep over the REM. So if you're chronically fatigued or not sleeping enough, you're going to uh, decrease that REM sleep even more over time. And the things that can lead to disordered REM sleep have to do with waking up in the middle of the night. So for men who are aging, especially that can be prostate problems, can be a big problem here. And then difficulty with sleep latency. So um, st staying in bed but not actually sleeping can be a key thing to work on as well. So that's how I kind of think about those two different boxes of sleep and how we approach those. Very good. So is it true that, uh, so like we'll get more slow wave sleep or deep sleep uh, right at the beginning and uh, more REM sleep right at the end of our, let's say, eight hours? Yeah, definitely. So usually you, you fall into that slow wave or deep sleep cycle earlier in the night um, after falling asleep. And so if you are staying up later and you're cutting out that earlier part of your sleep, or if you eat or have alcohol right before bed, your slow wave sleep is going to potentially suffer. REM is normally going to be more towards the end of your sleep cycle. So if you're setting your alarm and getting up early without being fully rested, that REM uh, sleep can suffer more because it's going to be at the end of your sleep cycle. So they've really uh, done a lot of work with athletic teams on this and, and, if they're going to have to miss sleep, which one, which one do they say, okay, um, your athletic performance is going to be greatly affected by the fact that we've gone to bed too late or gotten up too early? Yeah, I mean, we think they're, they're both probably important, but, you know, slow wave sleep is usually linked more with the recovery from athletic activity and the physical improvements, whereas the REM sleep is typically more the mental and cognitive improvements. But for anyone who is an athlete or works with athletes, they know that the the mental component of athletics is as or more important sometimes than the physical parts. So that can be reaction time. It can be just general mood and how you approach competition or training. So I don't think you can do one without the other. There's some really interesting stuff though, coming out on sleep and athletic performance. And, you know, for me, this, this tends to be one of my talking points, especially when talking with patients who are maybe younger and they're that hard charging type a personality. And to that kind of person, I feel like telling them that their risk of, you know, cardiovascular disease or Alzheimer's 30 years down the road is going to be uh, lower if they sleep well, just maybe doesn't carry the same weight. If you can convince them that um, sleeping well is probably going to be as or more important than the training they're putting in. And there's some good studies showing that that sleep and recovery leads to improved athletic performance over time. And, you know, this has been tested with chronic sleep deprivation and, you know, they did weightlifting tests as well as cardiovascular tests that show a lower max deadlift after three days of sleep deprivation, um, as well as decreased aerobic performance as well. And, um, uh, we see this play out if, you know, if you look and this is work has been done on NBA, NFL, and NHL teams that travel, um, and what's called the circadian disadvantage. So teams that travel from the East to the West and play an evening game have a lower win percentage. 
So there is certainly something to this sleep uh, deprivation or the sleep disruption is probably more accurate with performance. Um, now, that being said, I also tell my athletes that I work with that, you know, one night of bad sleep is unlikely to affect performance. What we really worry about is chronic sleep disruption. So, you know, it's really normal before a big event to not sleep well, to kind of have the jitters and to be up or feel like you didn't sleep at all. And this has actually been looked at and one night of sleep deprivation really didn't have any effect on the performance the next day. What we worry about is if you're doing that day after day after day over time. So um, don't let that add to your stress as an athlete or let it add to your athlete stress if they have one poor night's sleep before a competition. You know, and one of the things I've found with all these monitoring devices that we have now is, is that there's a percentage of people that are sleeping better than they thought, you know, and, and some of that may be because, you know, our devices aren't perfect and, and, but maybe it's just because people underestimate or overestimate how much sleep they're getting. And that's one of the reasons why I like these devices is because people can come in and they'll say, you know, this is what I'm, you know, over time, this is what I'm averaging as far as my sleep. This is what I'm averaging as far as my REM, as far as deep. And I think that that's where the usefulness is. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not perfect, but it's very helpful for people to kind of start to understand their sleep. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, if we, we don't measure it in some way, then you can't really make changes and, and change variables that may lead to improved performance. So yeah, they, none of these devices are perfect. That being said, I think you can detect trends over time. And I think that's probably the most helpful. And so you can see things sometime with disordered sleep that can predict an oncoming illness, or you can look at overtraining and fatigue and that along with HRV and some other metrics can be really helpful to predict overtraining and when an athlete probably needs some rest. So, so that brings us to the chronotype again. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, that I had no idea was is that you'll have a fam you'll have a family with people who are you know complete blood relatives even twins sometimes where they'll have a completely opposite chronotype and it's it's an evolutionary advantage for families to have different people with with different chronotypes yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and I think this is something that's also uh, leads to a lot of stress within the family dynamic sometimes when you know you have kids or a spouse that is on a completely different chronotype than you are because our tendency, or at least my tendency, is to try and push someone towards what my chronotype is. And if you're up late or you know sleeping in too late in the morning and that doesn't match with what I'm doing, then it's got to be wrong, which now we're knowing is is not the case. So you know if you're one of those people who is used to staying up late and getting up late, it doesn't mean you're a lazy person. It just means that that's where your body clock is set. Uh, that being said, it, it's usually more difficult for those folks who are kind of the night owls and wake up late to function well with normal sleep patterns in our current you know, society because we value getting up early as opposed to and working or working out as opposed to someone who is rolling into the office at noon the following day. So it's all about, you know, making some adjustments. So to maximize how you work around that chronotype. So if you're lucky enough to have some flexibility with your work schedule, you can do things with starting work maybe a little bit later and working into the evening. Maybe we're going to be more productive or timing your exercise in a way that matches with your chronotype as well. So uh, for people like me who are morning people, I'd like to get up and work out first thing in the morning. Other people are going to find that really difficult to do, and they're going to get a lot better uh, training if they work out in the evenings before bed. So, uh, you know, it's all individual, and there's some trial and error here. There are a couple genetic markers we can look at, but I don't think those are really ready for prime time as far as actually predicting a chronotype at this point. 
Sure. So I like that because, you know, and this is just goes right back to evolution. So if you have a family member that's a night owl and then another family member that's a that's a morning lark, the two of you together create a indefensible time of only four hours. And back when we were worried about bears and, and lions, um, you your family was more protected by having two different chronotypes underneath the same roof or cave or, or whatever. So, you know, instead of evolution uh, um, filtering out the, you know, the people who uh, slept too long, it created a different type of protective mode, which is these chronotypes. Mm -hmm. So I found that incredibly uh, informative and helped me see the people in my family a little bit, you know, differently as far as how they're sleeping. So how do we figure out our chronotype? You know, so part of this is trial and error, and there's also some online quizzes that you can do that can give you an idea of what your chronotype is. So you can go through and answer some validated standardized questions that then can give you an idea to your chronotype. And I can send you the link for that to put in your, your show notes if you like. Absolutely. I think that's really important. And I think it's important for practitioners who are trying to help their patients sleep. Um, so for the people that are trying to help and they've figured out the chronotype, now what do they do? You know, so I think part of this is you know measuring to determine first of all what is there a problem and if so what that problem is, and then there's some basic sleep hygiene things that I think can really fix eighty to ninety percent of disordered sleep, and you can apply that you know depending on your chronotype at different times a day, and so these things aren't you know really the most glamorous but they're probably the most important. And the things that I've found to be most effective are just maximizing your chance for success with sleeping. So that means using your bedroom only for sleep and for sex, not using it to work or do other things in your bed, making that your zone where you're going to relax and being sure that it's dark, cold, and quiet. So, you know, either blackout curtains, LED tape, uh, or tape over any LED lights, being sure that it's cold. So I think, you know, around 65 degrees is typically recognized as a fairly ideal temperature and then quiet. So earplugs or some kind of a white noise machine can sometimes be helpful. Then timing exercise as well as eating can also be a useful intervention as well. So for most patients, I'll try and advise them not to eat uh, anything or drink anything with calories in it for three hours before going to bed, because I think that helps put you in a zone where you're ready to relax and go to sleep. So by maximizing those things to start with and then applying those based on where your chronotype falls, you're going to fix a lot of disordered sleep patterns. Um, so the other piece that comes into this is avoiding screens or, or uh, blue light in the two to three hours prior to sleep. So you could do that with blue blocking glasses if you are going to be on a screen or just switching from reading on your computer or reading on a screen to just reading a regular old book before bed could be helpful. Yeah. And then they, those monitors really help with that too, because you can kind of figure out uh, what it is that, you know, you're sensitive to, right? I mean, trying to do these one thing at a time maybe, and then using your, some sort of monitor to, to see what works or what doesn't work for you. Yeah, absolutely. These end of one tests, I think can be really helpful because, you know, like we're mentioning, uh, everyone is different and people's sleep cycles and sleep patterns are going to be different as well. So there may be some things that work for you that don't work for everyone else. So let's say, for example, someone gets a you know a sleep monitor and they start using it, and they say, "Okay, I'm going to do this one thing at a time." Well, how would you how would you how would you set if you were to advise them? How would you say, "Hey, do this first, and then do this, and then do this"? Sure. So, I mean, I think what I would typically have my patients do to start with 
is do a week or two where they change nothing. Um, and I, I do this with diet and exercise and sleep because I, I kind of want to see what their baseline is. So I'll often just start recording what they're doing. And this can be difficult because as we know, as soon as you start measuring something, your tendency is to change it. I think it's the Hawthorne effect where you start like studying something that all of a sudden people, people's behavior changes. But I try and have them leave things alone as much as possible. And this can be keeping a sleep journal where there's kind of writing down, you know, what did that two to three hours before bed look like? Were you, were you working? Were you stressed? Were you watching TV? When did, what time did you have dinner? What time did you go to bed? And then, you know, what time did you wake up? And then I'll take that data and take a look and we'll dive into that a little bit deeper. So there's a couple of things you can learn from that. And one piece of that is going to be what's called sleep latency. So the time that you're spending from when you lay down to when you actually go to sleep. And some of these monitors can be really helpful for tracking that. So if I'm seeing someone who has a, a lot of sleep latency or where they're saying, you know, like I, I go to bed at, you know, 8.30 or 9 or 10 or whatever it is, but I lay there for two hours and I can't go to sleep. So that makes me think of a couple of things. So either they're not matched with their chronotype and they're truly someone who should be going to bed at 10 or 11 and getting up later, or more typically, they're going to bed in kind of a hyper aroused state. So they've got increased cortisol levels, they've had dinner at, you know, eight, and then tried to go to bed at nine, and their brain is ramped up and their sleep environment isn't optimized. So working through some of those things about what their sleep environment and their pre-sleep routines look like can be helpful. Adding in things like meditation or mindfulness practice to help wind down at the end of the day can be really useful as well, especially with those people who struggle with increased time in bed and um, sleep latency where they're laying there but not sleeping. So those are my initial things that I'll look at for someone like that. Oh, very good. So, you know, for me, it turns out that uh, alcohol kind of does a, a little number. I can still sleep pretty good. and I And I tell people that you know, when I started, so I have six kids, three girls, three boys, right? When I started potty training my kids, the, all of them were potty trained at age two. And then the boys decided that they were good with crappy, crappy diapers. They'd be sitting there <laughs> playing and, and you'd know that they'd crapped in their shorts and yet they were still good with playing. And, yeah. and I think that that's kind of how I am with alcohol is, is that, is that yes, it doesn't, you know, I don't sleep as well, but, um, but I'm I'm good I'm good with it for you know I, I I make that exchange one for the other right yeah and so what I what I tell you if you were my patient would be you know okay like that's great you've identified that as a lifestyle factor of something you're not willing to give up I think that's super important because this means you know this is important to you like you don't have to go on and tweak every part of every person's lifestyle because it's just not going to be sustainable over time but what I'd say is you know when you have that one or two drinks maybe move that up an hour or two a night. So instead of having your last drink at seven or eight, maybe have that at six and then give yourself two or three hours after that to metabolize. And then when, by the time you go to bed, you're not going to have that floating around and disrupting your sleep cycle. So that's one thing that you might consider as well. So it's just about making some small tweaks to people's lifestyle without sometimes doing a whole reboot because it's just not going to be something people are going to be compliant with. Okay. So... So let's say, for example, we figure out our chronotype. We know that we're we're a go to bed early type person. Let's let's say, right? And we try to set up this pattern where we say, you know what, we're going to fall asleep at this time, and we're going to get up at this time because we know that our circadian rhythm falls in line with that, and it just ain't happening. What do you do then? 
Yeah, so that that's tough. You know, so I'd I'd first ask, are are you sure that's actually your chronotype? Because if you're, you know, not able to shift this over time, and you know, this isn't the kind of thing where you just turn it on, turn it off. We know from looking at jet lag that it's it's not like you just decide all of a sudden you're going to be a morning person and then you click into that. It's something where you have to adjust your sleep cycle gradually over time. So I would say try and progress your sleep cycle in the direction that you want gradually without making a drastic change. And when we look at the recommendations and literature around jet lag, we think, you know, depending on direction of travel, that's typically, um, you know, one time zone per day, roughly. So if you were going to, you know, try and change your chronotype by four hours, maybe you'd want to do that over at least a week, but probably a little bit longer. And starting with shifting your patterns around that is probably the most important thing. So I'd kind of dig deeper into what time you were eating, what time you were exercising, and what that looked like, and see if that was maybe holding you back from shifting your chronotype. Um, if that's still not working, we've optimized all those things. You could talk about sleep supplements potentially, um, and we might get into that a little bit later. So something like melatonin could have a role here. I, I really try and get most of, or all my patients off of any kind of benzodiazepine or anticholinergic sleep supplements because I think more and more we're learning that those are probably detrimental for cognitive function over time. So um, I really try and discourage people from using those long-term, but in a pinch, it could be something that you need. But I try and reserve that mostly for travel or for short-term sleep disruptions. Um, so you might use something like melatonin to help shift that sleep phase and sleep cycle as well. Um, and if none of those things are working, then I think we need to have a look into kind of what your goals are. And, you know, if you can still sleep seven or eight hours and your numbers look good and you feel good, then maybe you're just the kind of person who needs to do that sleeping between midnight and 8 a.m. And that's kind of where your chronotype is set. So those are those are kind of my initial approach to something like that. OK, so for probably 20 years, Ambien was a big one. What have we learned about Ambien and why are, why did it seem like sleep doctors are shifting away from that? Sure. You know, so I think Ambien is is great. And some of the, the problem is that it's a little bit too great, right? Like it, it leads to uh, letting you fall asleep really quickly. But unfortunately, the quality of that sleep and the sleep architecture that you get when you're asleep on Ambien just isn't the same as your normal sleep cycle. So, you know, one of the analogies I've heard made is that uh, Ambien it's kind of like someone coming in and clubbing you over the head and making you unconscious. Like that's not really the kind of sleep that you want day after day. That, that's not going to be restful and restorative over time. And it can be fairly habit forming, not only from a psychological perspective, but I think there's some stuff showing that it can actually be uh, addictive in some other ways as well. So, you know, I think if you need it for a short term sleep disruption, maybe worthwhile, but I try and discourage long term use. Hasn't there been, and I'm, and I'm just speaking, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I can't remember, but hasn't there been a study where they said that the people who are on Ambien versus the people who are getting no sleep at all, there, there's very little difference in their future Alzheimer's risk where, where the people on Ambien are still getting Alzheimer's because of lack of sleep. Yeah. I, I don't know the details of that study off the top of my head, but I do believe you're right. So then, so then let's say, for example, you know, I start taking melatonin and I know a lot of people taking, who take melatonin. Um, I, I, I personally have never taken it, but, um, you know, what are the supplements, including melatonin that you would recommend? Sure. So, you know, I feel like melatonin is generally a pretty safe sleep supplement. So melatonin is naturally 
produced in uh, the pineal gland and it doesn't have a negative feedback loop. So this is something I had misunderstood for a long time, but uh, so taking melatonin doesn't suppress your body's ability to make more melatonin. So you're not going to get into something where you're dependent on melatonin to sleep typically from a physiologic perspective. The dose of melatonin though, I think is often overdone. So really you don't need like a, a 10 milligram dose, the key for melatonin is usually taking it at the right time. So taking, you know, two to three milligrams, but doing that two hours to sleep prior to sleep, and then using that in association with the sleep hygiene things that we talk about, like the dim light, the avoiding blue lights, um, some, you know, meditation or mindfulness, I think is when it can become most effective. Uh, where people run into trouble is sort of taking a big slug of melatonin as they get into bed, then maybe it's not going to be as useful. So that's what I'll, I'll reach for first, especially with travel or for with athletes who are having maybe trouble with some temporary sleep disruption. As far as okay. other supplements that I'll use, you know, CBD is used and some people have a good response with that. Others don't. There's some genetic variability there uh, based on probably an FAH SNP that could, you know, be predictive, but some trial and error can be helpful as well. Uh, the other things that you could could use that are generally pretty well tolerated and safe would be magnesium. And I prefer a magnesium biglycinate preparation because there's some theory that the glycine is actually kind of a gabinergic neurotransmitter it could be calming um, and can help with, uh, with the sleep as well. 5-HTP is another one and that's converted to serotonin. Tryptophan is also used. Um, and there's some kind of sleep blends out there. Uh, Doc Parsley's is, is one that, that is out there that has a combination of these different things in it as well. So uh, I try and use these mostly for temporary sleep while we're working on all the lifestyle things to hopefully help optimize sleep long-term without supplements. Okay. Let's say I don't want to take a supplement. Great. What are some other things I can try? <laughs> so, so you know, the, <laughs> the other, I think the other things that you could add into the usual sleep hygiene stuff would, if you have access to a, to a sauna um, and doing some contrast bath before bed can be really useful. So doing a hot sauna and then a cold shower. The other things that are helpful are, you know, maximizing the cold environment. So there's some things called like a chili pad. There's multiple different devices that can uh, go on your bed that can cool down your bed itself. Uh, I've mentioned meditation and mindfulness, which I think is really key for a lot of people to help wind down and kind of turn off their brain a little bit at the end of the day. Uh, there's some great yoga nidra, some online stuff that's free, that's easily accessible, that can be really useful for sleep. PEMF has been used for this. There's some machines out there. I don't have a ton of experience using these. So uh, that's something I usually don't reach for right away. And then just being sure you've maximized everything in the environment to be as successful as possible. Very good. Okay, so we're we're getting to the end because you know um, we aren't trying to make anyone fall asleep right now, <laughs> but but this being the greatest podcast ever, I'm going to tell you a, a different problem, and you tell me what you would do, you know, right off the bat as far as that goes. Okay, sure. so let's say, and we've already gone over this one, but let's let's just say, you know, just kind of a quick, you know, the quick uh, the quick we're going to take care of it. I'm having trouble falling asleep. So, you know, I think at that point, I'm going to really look at that sleep hygiene and what your pre-bedtime routine looks like, and I'm going to optimize all those different pieces that we've talked about. Um, if that's still not working, then working on, uh, you know, like blue blocking glasses, some yoga nidra, some meditation, 
or mindfulness practice before sleep. And then if that still isn't doing it, maybe a short course of some melatonin or something temporarily while we're optimizing everything else. Okay. Next, you know, I've got my Apple Watch, my Aura, my Whoop. I got all of them working at the same time and they're all saying you're just not getting enough deep sleep. Sure. So first of all, I'd had you take off two out of three of your devices because it's probably just stressing <laughs> you out. Um, so when I see a lack of slow wave sleep, I usually think um, that could be because you're not getting to bed early enough. So, you know, maybe you're staying up late watching Netflix or reading or working or whatever it is. So trying to push that bedtime a little bit earlier so you can capitalize on the initial sleep stages where you're going to get a lot of that slow wave sleep. Um, alcohol is a common culprit here. And then avoiding any food and fasting for two to three hours before bed um, can be really helpful as well. Okay. So then not enough REM sleep. And so REM sleep is going to be at the end of your sleep cycle. So if you're having disordered REM sleep, that can be a couple things. So usually it can be maybe you're trying to set your alarm and get up too early and your chronotype or you haven't adapted to that. So letting yourself sleep in a little bit later and adjusting your schedule accordingly. Um, some medications or supplements like phosphatidylserine um, can be helpful there that can maybe reduce the amount of cortisol and help with the stress response. And then just working on sleep consistency. So, um, and this, this has to do with slow wave as well, but you, the, this idea of social jet lag where, you know, Monday through Friday, you're working and up at six and in bed at 10. And then on the weekends, you're out till 2 a.m. and sleep till noon, but then you're flipping back and forth between weekends and during the week. That consistency is going to really wreck your sleep architecture over time. Um, and then the other thing with the not enough REM sleep is that'll usually suffer if you're just chronically sleep deprived because you're going to give up that REM sleep in favor of the, the deep or slow wave sleep. So work on overall amount of sleep that you're getting as well. Okay. So now with total sleep, you know, I, I think I've, I've read the statistics that it's an extraordinary small number of people that actually only need, you know, five hours of sleep, but I'm, I'm, I'm watching my total sleep and I'm running right at six every time. Mm -hmm. And you know, and, and, and I mean, I'm not one of those people. I, I need more sleep. So, so what's the deal? How am I supposed to get, what if I'm not getting enough total sleep? Yeah. I mean, usually a lot of times that has to do with just blocking out time in your schedule for sleep. So making sleep a priority. And, you know, one thing I'll tell my patients is that if you wouldn't set your alarm to get up and do it, then don't stay up for that. So like, if you wouldn't set your alarm for five in the morning to watch Netflix, then don't stay up till 11 watching Netflix. You know, it, it's tempting to do at the time, but just make that kind of sleep a priority. And with the new technology, especially like the, the iPhones, you can really set all your technology and devices to turn off and uh, kind of shut down at a certain time, which can be helpful. And then work on that sleep latency too. So that time from, you know, when you go to bed to when you actually fall asleep can be useful. So you're getting the most out of the time that you are sleeping or laying in bed and you're using that for sleep instead of churning through the events of your day. Okay, so then last is the can't stay asleep, which, you know, and I hate to say, I hate to tell on my wife, but that's my wife. And, and I'm positive that it has a lot to do with me, even though I don't, I don't, I don't snore. Uh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure her life is very stressful because she's in the, she's in the same house as I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, this is a tough one. So uh, the not staying asleep, I think, is a more difficult problem and more common as you age as well. And part of that can be related to getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So if there's, you know, BPH or something else that we can address or fix, you can work on that. So you're not having those 
uh, frequent interruptions. Uh, part of it can have to do with stress and your body working through some of those things in the middle of the night and then optimizing your sleep environment. There's different theories here on that, you know, what do you do in the middle of the night when you wake up and, you know, feel like you can't go back to sleep. Um, it, at some point, uh, we could dive into that a little bit more. Usually I'll tell patients initially, though, to try and stay in bed and try and either do some, you know, breathing or some, uh, you know, turn on a meditation for 10 minutes and see if they can get themselves back to sleep. If that's not working, then instead of sitting in bed or laying there and worrying and perseverating and not sleeping, then maybe better to get out of bed, take 20 minutes, go read or do something that's minimally stimulating, then go back into the bedroom and try and get back to sleep um, in that environment. So you're saving that kind of sleep environment for actually sleeping instead of worrying about being asleep. So uh, an episode we did on cognitive behavioral therapy, there was a doctor, uh, Jim Lemons, who's a, a mental health guy. And he said that, he said, all those stressors that you have when you fall asleep, when you get into light sleep, when you cycle back into the light sleep, all those stressors are still there. So he says, you know, a lot of times people wake up. So that's one of the reasons why I say that, you know, I'm pretty sure I, I caused this for my wife. So when I went and looked for a, um, a sleep person in our city, I talked to several sleep doctors, you know, pulmonary doctors, and, and they said, nope, all we deal with is, is um, sleep apnea and, and you know, some, some medical aspects of sleep. And when I, found, when I found you and started talking to you, I said, you know what, this is, this is, there's this rise in information that people have, and they really have no one to go to. Have you guys find, kind of found that? Yeah, absolutely. I think we, you know, we found that across multiple different domains and sleep being one of those is that, you know, we have access to more data uh, than we ever have before about our, our bodies and how we work and how we function. And we are learning more and more that all of us are individuals. So a you know, maybe population-based approach to medicine could be useful for some things, but it doesn't necessarily predict how someone is going to do on an individual level. So I think one of the things that we've potentially lost in medicine are the ability to relate to patients as an individual as opposed to part of a larger meta-analysis or epidemiological study. And so that's one of the things we're really trying to focus on is, you know, not only blocking out time to have some of these conversations that are just really challenging when you're in a clinic and you're seeing, you know, 25 or 30 patients in a day to sit down and talk through someone's sleep doesn't seem like maybe a priority. Uh, so blocking out that time, but also being able to help patients synthesize all this data that's coming in from their or their whoop or their Apple watch and know what to do with it and how to intervene. Um, and we've had some really great success stories with that, with kind of getting people healthier and improving their quality of life. It's been a really rewarding journey so far. That's really good. So, um, so tell us, so tell us a little bit more about, I know that you do a, a podcast. So Dr. Goodman told me before we started, he said, you know, the sweet spot is about 20 minutes on a podcast because he, you know, he, they do podcasts. And, and I said, great, since this one's so wonderful, we're going to make it 45. We're going to be, we're going to be double sweet spot. I can't listen to, to myself talk for 45 minutes. So I, I apologize. <laughs> we'll try and wrap it, wrap it up here. So, uh, yeah, I'm a, a guest on a wild health podcast, so you can check that out if you're interested on, um, some more things regarding, personalized and precision medicine and the interplay with that and sports medicine, I think is huge. There's a lot of overlap and things we can be doing here as primary care sports doctors to get people healthier and keep them healthier. Um, so I think, you know, as and primary care sports medicine, we're kind of ideally positioned to take on this new challenge of preventative care and precision medicine. So I look forward to 
to working with all of all you future people uh, about how to move this forward. Uh, that's awesome. Okay, good. So we will have all of the all of the contact information uh, available on the show notes. Please come to uh, bodyguitar.com and you'll find it there. Um, but uh, thank you very much, Dr. Goodman. This has been really, this has been really good. Almost as good as the one we did before. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the other one was was only twenty minutes, and it was just way better. <laughs> but you know, no, double, th- thanks for having me. I, I appreciate your time. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate your download and taking the time to listen. Please go to whatever source you normally get your podcast from and subscribe. Also. Visit bodyguitar.com for show notes and to learn about our clinic. Living longer is not near as important as living better. These episodes are meant to advance the goal of living better. One of the best and hardest ways to achieve this goal is to pray for your enemies and forgive those that hurt you. Life is about relationships. Build them. Until next time, body guitar practitioners, performers, and tuners, Get your body in tune. This is Dr. Sean Wheeler on Spine and Body Podcast, and I will see you on the next episode. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare studies, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health providers for any such condition.